The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Sunnyvale, California. Today's sermon will be covering Acts chapter 21, 1 through 14. For those of you who haven't been here, we're just going straight through the book. This book was compiled as probably one very long scroll 2,000 years ago by Luke the physician slash missionary slash scholar slash historian evangelist, Luke, who was an associate and friend of the Apostle Paul. And the Holy Spirit of God moved Luke to write all this down for us. And God has graciously preserved this truth for 2,000 years. hasn't been lost. Everything in Luke, everything Luke wrote down 2,000 years ago is, is still with us. It hasn't been lost. Jesus gave that guarantee that he would preserve his word. So we thank God for that. Uh, the book of Acts started with Jesus Christ having just risen from the dead and then commissioning his disciples, and then he ascended into heaven, and then the Holy Spirit of God came down and began the church, the body of Christ in Acts chapter 2. And then we saw the ministry of the apostles in Jerusalem as they preached the gospel, and people were getting saved, and the church was exploding, and they were also getting resistance from primarily unbelieving Jews. And then there was a persecution in Jerusalem. And so a lot of these Jerusalem Christians left Jerusalem and just went all over the place, all the way, uh, mostly up north uh, to the coast and other cities and Samaria and beyond and over to the coast where Phoenicia was and some of those port cities like Tyre and Sidon and Caesarea. And so that happened early on. So Christianity is spreading even in persecution. And the one instigating and spearheading all this, a lot of this uh, persecution against Christianity is a very zealous, hard-headed rabbi named Saul. And he was brutal, actually. And he, he despised and hated Christians and their Jesus, who he thought was a false teacher. And, and Saul was given tremendous authority by the leadership in Jerusalem to instigate this massive persecution of finding Christians, chasing them down, even arresting them and throwing them in prison. And some of them were killed, dying for their faith. And Saul was spearheading this. And then God invaded his life, the Lord Jesus Christ, and humbled him and saved him. And then over the course of the last 20 years, we've been looking at where from chapter 9 in Acts now to Acts chapter 21, God has been using Saul, who then became the apostle Paul, to take this gospel that he once so much despised and to take it to the uttermost parts of the earth, primarily the Gentiles. And so Paul has been, over the course of three missionary journeys, we call them, going to a lot of new territory where people haven't heard the gospel. They haven't heard of Jesus. Some had synagogues and were a wee bit familiar with the Old Testament, and some of these cities and towns didn't even have synagogues, as far as you know, like Philippi, for example. And Paul was bringing the gospel of Jesus Christ to new territories and people getting saved. And he's establishing churches along the way and trying to raise up leadership. So he's been doing this over the course of 20 years. And now uh, it's towards the end of his life. And so Acts chapter 21 picks up around 58 A.D. This is about 25 years after Christ ascended into heaven. Maybe a little more than that. Paul's been a Christian 20 plus years. And he just finished his third missionary journey, which was his longest missionary journey. And he spent most of that time, two plus years, almost three years, in the city of Ephesus, which was 
a huge cosmopolitan city at the time where he started a church and there were many believers, but he also faced great resistance. And then he begins his departure from Ephesus and he's going to head back to Jerusalem, hopefully in time for Pentecost, one of the, the major feast days in the Jewish calendar. And he wants to go to Jerusalem a thousand miles away where he used to, where he got educated, where he, he used to rule in the Sanhedrin, where he used to persecute the church. There, he wants to go back to Jerusalem. And then he becomes a Christian. He got chased out of Jerusalem. But he wants to go back there now uh, for the feast day, but also to take a huge collection of money that over the course of probably more than a year, he collected from all these other Gentile churches from Corinth and Philippi and Thessalonica and the Ephesians. And he's collecting a lot of money that these generous Gentile Christians who haven't even met these believers a thousand miles away in Jerusalem, they're giving to the cause because they know that the believers in Jerusalem are suffering from a famine and persecution. And Paul is going to bring a lot of money for their relief. And so that's one of the main things that's motivating Paul to go back to the persecuted church in Jerusalem, the church he used to persecute to relieve these believers and to meet their needs. And by doing that, not only is he going to relieve them with this financial blessing and gift, it's also going to be a wonderful testimony and sign of the love of Christ, whether you're a Jewish believer or a Gentile or Greek believer, because all the money that's being given to these Jewish Christians is from Greek Christians, Gentile Christians, many of whom they've never even met. And so this will be one of the ways that God can knit their hearts together. They are one family of God. And in Jesus Christ, it doesn't matter what your ethnicity is. It doesn't matter what color your skin is. It doesn't matter your socioeconomic status, what your job is, whether you're male or female. If you know Jesus Christ, you're in the family of God. And that's the only way you get into the family of God is by spiritual adoption, by believing in the gospel. And God, the creator of the universe, is your intimate, personal, heavenly father by virtue of you being adopted into his family through the work of Jesus Christ, who is the God man who died on the cross willingly when he got punished and God poured out his wrath. Jesus became the substitute for sinners, was buried, rose again from the dead and is calling sinners to himself so that they might believe in his gospel and be adopted into the family of God. So when you become a Christian or become born again or believe in the gospel or saved or justified or reconciled to God, you literally join the family of God. Boy, is that a message our world needs to hear today, right? With all the division over all kinds of stuff. Divided over politics, divided over skin color, divided over this, blah, blah, blah. And the world, they're never going to find a solution. They don't know what the solution is. There's only one solution. It is in Christ and him alone. That is the good news. So Paul knows that, and he knows that by bringing this wonderful gift of love to these Jewish Christians, that God's going to use that uh, just to knit the hearts of these believers even more. Once again, reminding them that there's only one family of God. So today's sermon uh, I called Serving Christ to the Death. Serving Christ to the Death, and that's talking about Paul. It's a statement that Paul makes at the end of this passage as we look at verses 1 through 14. Uh, so go ahead and look at it because it's the theme. It's the crescendo. It's where we're leading up to. Uh, Paul, in verse 13, says, Paul answered his fellow believers. He said, what are you doing? Uh, weeping and breaking my heart, for I am ready not only to be bound or imprisoned or in 
put in chains and arrested, but I am even ready to die at Jerusalem. So he's going to Jerusalem. He's intent on going to Jerusalem. He thinks it's God's will that he go to Jerusalem, but he knows when he goes to Jerusalem, he might be arrested. He might even die. And he's okay with that. Because he believes that God has given him a divine mission to that end. I'm ready to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Now, this was not just some spontaneous afterthought that Paul had. He was an apostle. He was a, a formal ambassador and emissary of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we've been watching the ministry of Paul for 20 years as an apostle, for the most part, he has been spirit-filled and obedient. Even in the face of opposition, persecution. He wasn't perfect. He was a sinner. But in terms of his ministry, he was focused. He, he felt he was the worst sinner on planet Earth, and God graciously saved him. And as a result, he was going to give his life, no matter what, for this cause, that other sinners can hear this good news. Because he literally believed he was the worst sinner of all and didn't deserve the mercy and the grace and the forgiveness of God. That's what motivated him. And as a result, uh, he would give his life even in the face of death for the Lord Jesus Christ. So at the end of his third missionary journey, Acts 19, by way of reminder, verse 21, at the end of serving in Ephesus for three years, he had an itinerary, he committed it to the Lord, and he believed God was leading him to go to Jerusalem because there was such a tremendous response to the collection he was taking for the saints in Jerusalem, Acts 19, 21, after he tells uh, the saints there in Ephesus. Now, after these things, or Luke writes, now after these things were finished, Paul purposed in the spirit to go to Jerusalem. So that's where he's going. It's been on his heart for quite some time. He purposed to go to Jerusalem after he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia. So that's months and months before he actually ends up going to Jerusalem. And then in Acts chapter 20, he meets with the elders at Ephesus and spends some quality time with them. And he also tells them, he knows I'm about to go to Jerusalem and I know it's not going to be easy. Acts 20 verse 22. And now behold, bound in spirit, committed in spirit. I am single. I am focused. I believe this is where God is leading me. This is the will of God. This is where I'm headed now bound in spirit. I am on my way to Jerusalem. There it is. Not knowing what will happen to me there, except that one thing I keep hearing for the last who knows how months or maybe even years that the Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me in every city that I keep going into. I keep hearing the same message from fellow believers through the Holy Spirit, probably through local prophets, and they keep saying the same thing, uh, saying that bonds and afflictions await me. There it is. So I know I know that when I go to Jerusalem, I'm, pro- I'm going to be arrested. Verse 24, but I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself, but that's okay. I don't live for me. I live for Jesus. In order that I may finish my course. See, he thought this was it. I want to finish my course. I want to finish the race. I want to finish uh, the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm headed that way. So let's go now to Acts chapter 21. And Paul gets on a ship and he literally starts uh, going through the Mediterranean Sea on his way to the destination of Jerusalem. And so today's sermon, Serving Christ to the Death. Uh, I broke it up into three points of emphasis here to walk us through the narrative. So let's go ahead and look at them one at a time. The first point there is verses 1 through 6. I called it the disciples' exhortation. He's going to meet some. He gets on a little boat, and he's floating around from city to city, island to island. 
over the course of several days. Then he finally lands, meets some Christians, and they get to know Paul, and then they have a word of exhortation for him. So let's go ahead and look at it, verses 1 through 6, starting at verse 1. And when it came about that we had parted from them, this is Luke talking. Luke is now with Paul. He joined Paul at Philippi. Hadn't seen him in a while. Luke is an eyewitness now. And they have an entourage, several people going with Paul. They leave Miletus, and they find a little boat. It's not a major ship. It's not a major cargo ship. It's a smaller ship. It's so small that it can't go out into the Mediterranean Sea too far, because otherwise it would be capsized and gone. So they had certain ships uh, that would float just real close and hug the coast as they went. And this is one of the ships they started out on. It's a smaller ship hugging the coast, not a cargo ship. He's going to take a couple different boats uh, to Jerusalem, but first they get on these smaller little boats. So verse 38 of the previous chapter says they got on a ship or a little boat there, and they set out from Miletus. Verse 1, and when it came about that we had parted from them, the elders in Miletus, the elders from Ephesus, we set sail, and we ran a straight course to Kos, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patara. And having found a ship, this is the bigger ship, crossing over to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. So they're taking these little boats that hug the coast, and then finally they get onto this massive ship. And verse 3, and when we had come inside of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we kept sailing to Syria and landed at Tyre, for there the ship was to unload its cargo. So first three verses there, if you're paying attention, all these names are listed. Kos, Rhodes, Patara, Cyprus, Syria, Tyre. Most of these don't mean anything to the average American. Whoop-de-doo. Why is that in there? So usually when you're doing your Bible reading or devotions and say you're going through the book of Acts, t- the typical Christian will just read through and just pass over Kos and Rhodes and Patara and you just don't even think twice. And yet Luke, of all the things that he could have said, and he could have said a lot, Luke decides to put that detail in there. That they went to Kos, and then they went to Rhodes, and then they went to Patara, and then they went to... Why did he do that? It seems almost insignificant. Who cares? Nothing happened there. It doesn't say anything significant happened in Kos or Rhodes or that they did evangelism or planted a church. It's just They're just kind of leapfrogging, passing places. Why are they there? Uh, I don't know totally why, other than everything in the Bible is significant. Everything in the Bible, God wants us to know at least to be aware of. When you start studying these places, like Kos or roads, and you realize, wow, this place is significant. This place was amazing. The, the history that these places that we're not familiar with had is absolutely amazing. Coast, for example, uh, it still exists today. I don't know if you knew that. It's, over, it's an island. In verse 1, coast, it's an island. Uh, it became a free... It has this rich history even before the Apostle Paul was born. It was a thriving community even in the days of Paul. Even though it was an island, 25 miles by 5 miles, it's off the coast there close by. Became a free city of Rome in 53 AD. Many people frequented coast back then. Uh, from history, we know that it had it was a place of education, learning, business, Hippocrates, I don't know if you've ever heard of him, Hippocrates. Oh, that sounds familiar. Hippocrates. Oh, the Hippocratic Oath. Oh, medical stuff. Yeah. 
So Hippocrates apparently was from there around 400 BC. He was a doctor. He was a physician. There was a medical school there on this little island of Kos. There was a library of renown there on this little island of Kos. Hippocrates, like I said, was from there. And he's the one that came up with that Hippocratic oath that is still to this day recited as a vow by many medical doctors. And if you read it in the English, it's an ethical oath saying things like, I promise to not abuse my medical profession. I promise to uh, just be dedicated to helping the sick heal to the best of my ability. He even talks about abortion. I will not uh, allow or assist a woman to have an abortion. It's literally in there. It's amazing. This is over 2,000 years ago. So that's this little island of coast where they stopped. And that was probably to get from Miletus to coast is about a one-day journey on this little boat. So they travel one day, land there. Then the next day, they go out, and from coast, they go to Rhodes, which is a, a bigger island. But it's down there. And today, you can go to Rhodes. It is a historic place. In the recent census from just a couple of years ago, uh, they said they had 50,000 people living on the island of Rhodes. 50,000. So it is occupied today. It also is significant in terms of its history. The island of Rhodes actually was noted as one of the, had one of the seven ancient wonders of the world in Rhodes. Where before the days of Paul, it had this massive statue as tall as the Statue of Liberty, which is huge, especially in that day, built around 280 BC of the Greek god Helios, the god of the sun. And it just was there at the entrance and there on the harbor and just towered over the island of Rhodes and it became world renowned ever since that statue was built and all throughout history. So that was Rhodes with bustling activity that was going on there. Today you can go and visit, like I said, 50,000 people. As a matter of fact, uh, the chairman of our elders, Sam Kim and his wife Lily, they went there two weeks ago and actually went on the island of Rhodes just to make sure this was true. The Bible was accurate as history and it is accurate. And I'm convinced that's why Luke puts this stuff. Every once in a while, Luke is recording all this ministry activity, things that were done, sermon that was preached. And then every once in a while, he'll stop in a paragraph and just start listing. We traveled here and went here and here and this stop and this stop and this. All these cities, all these islands we've never even heard of. It's like, Luke, why are you doing that? Oh, I think one of the reasons God wants to reassure his people, this is truth. This is history. This is factual. If the Bible has errors in it, here's a good place to find an error in terms of getting the geography wrong, city names wrong, history wrong. Then you study and realize, wow, it's not wrong. The Bible is accurate to a T. You can't do that with other religious books. I'm just telling you. If you read the Book of Mormon, much of it was actually plagiarized by Joseph Smith out of his King James Bible in the 1830s. So there are real cities there. Bethlehem mentioned because they come right out of the Bible. But then there are other cities mentioned that are completely fictitious and history has shown they were made up. They never existed. They can't be validated whatsoever. Same thing if you read the Quran. You can't read all this elaborate, detailed history and account for it the way you have in the Bible. It's just, it's just absolutely amazing. You can actually go and see this stuff. So they're in Rhodes. So they, and then that was another day trip to Rhodes. And then they left from Rhodes the next day. And then went about another day. So from Kos to Rhodes to Petar, these are all like 40 miles to 75 miles. So these are one day boat trips. And then Petara. And then they go to, um, verse two. 
and having found a ship, okay, this is a bigger ship. This is a cargo ship. They can stay on this one longer. This one, this one is going to make the journey not just 45 miles. This is going to go a thousand miles or whatever it was all the way, or maybe a little less than a thousand miles, all the way to the coast of Palestine, all the way to Phoenicia on our way to Jerusalem. One more ship that they're going to board. So Luke, Paul, and the rest of the team, when they came in sight of Cyprus, so they're taking this big cargo ship and they start sailing and they go to the, that well-known island of Cyprus, right in the middle of the Mediterranean. This, Cyprus, this takes us back to the early of the book of Acts when Paul started out on his missionary journey with Barnabas. And the first thing they did is they went to Cyprus and evangelized the entire island. And Barnabas was from there, from Cyprus. Could be that Barnabas and John Mark are still there on the island of Cyprus. Who knows? So who knows what Paul's thinking as they're sailing by. Let's stop at Cyprus. Oh, we better not. I don't know if uh, Barnabas is still mad at me. So they just keep sailing by Cyprus. Could be that Barnabas and John Mark are still there and they just keep on going down south. Heading to the coast of Palestine. So leaving it on the left, we kept sailing to Syria. Syria was where uh, Paul's home church was, Antioch up in the north. So they're kind of headed in that direction. And they landed at Tyre, another famous city. And it's right on the coast. Uh, Tyre is right on the coast, harbor there, north of Galilee. Not, not too far, as a matter of fact, from Galilee. Uh, for there the ship was to unload its cargo, verse 4. And after looking up the disciples... so. They get to Tyre and they start looking up for uh, disciples. Oh, I think there's Christians in this this city. Paul hadn't been here. He didn't have an extensive ministry at all beforehand in Tyre. But he knows there are believers there. Why are there believers there? Because believers scattered from Jerusalem who were persecuted, they went all the way up north and some of them landed in the city of Tyre. So there are believers there. A church was established. Paul heard about it. He knew it. Hey, here's a new city. Let's go see if we can find some Christians, have some sweet fellowship. And that's exactly what they did. And after looking up the disciples, they found some. And they stayed there for an entire week. What a, what a blessing to be with these believers, many of which they probably never even met in their life. Maybe Paul had a reputation with these Christians. Wow, you're Paul? I heard you're like an apostle. I've heard, well, actually, I've heard different things about you. I heard you were like a Christian killer. And that's why we're here in Tyre. That's why I had to leave my grandma in Jerusalem, because of you. But I also heard you got saved by Jesus, and you've been planting churches, and I, I heard you actually died. You're alive still? You got like beat up, I thought, up in Derby years ago. I've heard about you. And you've been writing these like letters and epistles that people keep reading and passing around. Wow, you're that guy, that Paul? That is awesome. And so they spent time with Paul for seven days. And just in seven days, their hearts were knit together. They, they, were in, they loved each other. And that's, that's true of a Christian. That's what's so unique and cool about being a Christian. If you're really born again, you can go anywhere in the world. And meet another Christian whom you have never met before. Sometimes they don't even speak the same language. And immediately you're drawn together. Your hearts are knit together because of your bond that you have and your love for Jesus Christ. And you are in the same spiritual family. And those of you who have traveled around the world know exactly what I'm talking about. Where I've been, I've been to Ghana and uh, Siberia and Ukraine and Mexico and most of these places I can't speak their language and then uh, you have a translator, and then all of a sudden you love these people closer than your own flesh and blood because you are brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what Paul experienced here with these disciples. 
What a blessing. So he stayed there for seven days. Um, and they, what were they doing there for seven days? Well, at the end of verse 3, it says they were unloading the cargo on this massive ship. That is one massive cargo ship. So Paul had to wait for the cargo to be unloaded. So they stayed there for a week, and then they uh, get back on the ship, and they kept telling Paul through the Spirit not to set foot in Jerusalem. So while he's there for seven days, he tells these new believers, or these believers he's met for the first time, yeah, I'm leaving. Paul, how long can you stay? Can you stay a couple weeks? No, actually, I'm, I got to leave as soon as this cargo ship is unloaded. Well, where are you going? Well, I'm actually going to go to Jerusalem. We have this uh, love gift of money from the saints, and we want to bring it and provide relief to the Jerusalem uh, saints there and the, where the famine is. And so we're headed there as soon as possible. And I want to get there before Pentecost. And, and they're trying to warn Paul, some of them, that, Paul, you're going to, if you go to Jerusalem, they don't like you there. Yeah, I know. Well, they hate you there. Well, yeah, I know. Well, I've seen your wanted picture there in the post office. It's like they're going to kill you if you go there. As a matter of fact, last time you were there, weren't you chased out of town? Yeah, that, that is true. Peter told me to, to leave in a hurry. Well, why are you going back? You go back, you're, you're going to get arrested. You could be killed. And so this is what the disciples there are telling him. Verse 4. And after looking up the disciples, we stayed there seven days. They kept telling Paul. So they kept telling him over and over again, please don't go. Please don't go uh, through the spirit to not to set foot in Jerusalem. And so there is debate about that phrase there through the spirit. What does that mean? Was this a prophecy that these disciples were giving Paul? Paul, thus saith the Lord, do not go to Jerusalem. Yet he went. Now, if he did that, he, that means he was disobedient. That was sinful. Some pastors, Bible teachers, actually believe that. Commentators, that's a position they hold. That's not an impossible position to to hold, that that Paul would be disobedient to God because uh, that's not impossible because Paul was sinful. At times he could be a little maybe bullheaded and wanting to do his agenda, very goal-oriented. We are all sinful. Paul was no different. And so... That's why some commentators conclude they gave a prophecy and told him, do not go. And yet he went anyway, and therefore that was sinful, and he shouldn't have done it. Just like in Acts 16, where the Spirit of God said, don't go to Ephesus right now. And there Paul heeded the Spirit, and he didn't go. He went later. And they'd say, here was a lapse in faith. Well, problem is, it doesn't say Paul disobeyed. It doesn't say he was wrong. It didn't say he was sinful. And the language... It's not, it's a little ambiguous. But they just kept, I just think he developed this sweet friendship with these people. They just adored Paul and they wanted him to stay longer. Don't go, don't go, don't. And they're just pleading with him to, because they love him. Don't go there. We already saw earlier in Acts 19 and 20, he already told everybody, this is the plan. This is what God wants me to do. Jesus wants me to go to Jerusalem. I am going in obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ. So I personally don't think Paul is being sinful and disobedient here. Verse 5. So that's the exhortation that I was talking about. This was emotional, passionate, ongoing, repeated plea from these dear saints. Paul, don't go. Verse 5. And when it came about that our days there were ended after seven days, we departed, Luke says. So Paul said, you know what? I'm sorry. I've got to do it. I've got to obey what the Lord Jesus Christ has called me to do. And we departed and started on our journey. And while... Uh, they all with wives and children. So all these disciples, 
with their families. Uh, they go with Luke, so they finally and, and Paul, and they realize, okay, you know, against you know what we want is we're pleading, we'll, we'll escort you to the coast and, and to the boat and give you a, a goodbye because we love you so much. And so the whole family, all these families are going, and they escorted Luke and Paul and their team all the way to the ship. Uh, they went out of the city, and get this is beautiful, verse 5, and after kneeling down on the beach, here they are publicly before the ship, all these Christians kneeling down on the beach, what are they doing? They are praying. Kneeling down on the beach. This is exactly what happened when Paul left the Ephesian elders in Miletus, verse 36 of the previous chapter. He was about to leave, and it says, verse 36, and when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with all the elders. That's just a beautiful expression, wonderful sign of humility. Didn't care who was around and watching. We're going to kneel, and we are going to pray on this beach, and who knows what he prayed, probably thanksgiving to God for the fellowship he had, also asking for travel mercies. God, go before us. Bless this journey. We commit it to you. May thy will be done. God, bless this local church here in the city with these wonderful people as they got down on their knees on the beach and they prayed. And they said farewell to one another. When he did it with the elders in Ephesus, verse 37 of chapter 20, it says, they nailed down, they prayed, and they began to weep aloud. And they embraced Paul and repeatedly kissed him. This is just, Luke is putting this very specific signs of love and affection and how these fellow believers just absolutely adored Paul. Highlighting that with the contrast he's a, of the reception he's about to get in Jerusalem. Which is just nothing but sheer hate. From the unbelieving Jews. Who once were partners with him. So this is just wonderful uh, love and affection. And just boldness and prayer. And we're going to humble ourselves. And this is like you know going to. Christians should pray. Publicly. Not to be a show off that'd be contrary to what jesus said to do you don't pray in public so that people will give attention to you it could be that they were praying at the beach and nobody was even around so they weren't doing it to show off for men we we don't pray that way but when you have opportunity to pray to god you shouldn't be inhibited or scared because of others who are around watching like if you're about to pray for a meal at a restaurant you don't need to be embarrassed if people are watching you pray oh those christians over there they must be religious praying in this secular taco bell how dare they no, no, God, he's the creator. The meat in the, my taco came from God. He owns it. I'm going to thank him accordingly. This is a good thing to do, to pray, and also kneeling down, a sign of humility. So I would encourage you to pray whenever you have part And also, they're praying before a long, arduous day. This is actually a very dangerous journey. 2,000 years ago, to cross through the entirety of the Mediterranean Sea, you became vulnerable. You could lose your life. So no doubt, Paul is praying for travel mercies. Sometimes we do that, don't we? You're about to, you should pray every time you get in your car. God, be with me, watch over me, save, preserve our life. Remind me to drive the speed limit and to use my turning indicator and follow all the rules. And I'm reminded of the book of Ezra where Thousands of Jews were going to travel 500 miles to Jerusalem. And it says they all got down and they prayed. And they prayed for travel mercies. God, keep us safe as we travel. How practical is that? God will answer that prayer. He'll answer it as he sees fit. 
but we're always just entrusting our life into the sovereign care of our God, regardless of what happens. Some of my dearest friends died in a car accident. Traumatic. Traumatic. They loved God. Did God abandon them? No. I, I know that family. They entrusted their life uh, to the Lord who is sovereign in all things. They said farewell. Verse 6, then uh, we went on board the ship and they returned home again. Let's go on to uh, 7 through 12, the illustration. After the exhortation of pleading with Paul, Paul, don't go to Jerusalem. No, I must obey Jesus. And so now the illustration, a prophetic illustration, 7 through 12. Verse 7, so they're on the ship. And when we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemaeus. So they travel hundreds of miles. They land on the coast of Palestine, the city of Tyre. And then they start going south along the coast. And so they arrived at another city called Ptolemaeus. And they greeted some Christians there in Ptolemaeus. Again, same thing. Paul didn't plant a church there, but there were Christians there who came from the persecution. So it's the same thing repeated all over again. Believers who were there because Saul chased Christians out of Jerusalem. And now he's a Christian. They have sweet fellowship, no doubt, greeting the brethren, the Christians who were there. And we stayed for them just for one day, not seven. And he's still he's now on the coast. Of where he wants to be of the promised land. And the coast back in those days on the coast where Tyre was going down the coast, uh, modern day Lebanon, I think that historically that was known as Phoenicia. So you got Tyre and Ptolemaeus, and then he's going to go down to Caesarea, famous city there. I've been to Caesarea. It's still right on the Mediterranean Sea, and it was a port that Herod the Great built in about 20 B.C. over the course of 15 years with huge, massive limestones. And it became military headquarters for Rome, actually. And all these Roman soldiers there, centurions, important people. Some of the governors uh, had their mansion there. Herod was there. That was one of his beautiful palaces was there. All that stuff. It still exists today, 2,000 years later. It's amazing because it was all made out of massive limestones. You can go visit it today. On the coast. So that's where they're headed. Tyre, Ptolemaeus, going to go down to Caesarea. Stay today, verse 8. And on the next day we departed and came to Caesarea. There it is, Caesarea. We've seen that in the book of Acts already, Caesarea. Jesus did ministry uh, near Caesarea. Or his influence carried over there. People came from Caesarea to hear him preach. Caesarea there on the coast. We met uh, Caesarea earlier in the book of Acts, when Cornelius, remember Cornelius? He was a a Roman soldier, but also a Roman commander, a centurion, meaning he was in charge of a hundred Roman soldiers of the Italian Roman army. He was stationed in Caesarea. That's where Cornelius was. He was a Gentile, probably raised as a total pagan, polytheist, who knows what, in false religion. And then at some point, He obviously got disillusioned with all the false religion and the Greek philosophy, and he heard about Judaism and the God of the Old Testament and Yahweh in the Scriptures, and that influenced him, and he became a God-fearer. He's like, man, I want that. That is of substance. This other stuff is shallow and leaves a void in my soul, and he became a God-fearer. And God attended to the desires of Cornelius in a vision 
And that's how and then Cornelius called for Simon Peter, the apostle, to come visit. So Peter, we saw this earlier, came to visit Cornelius, gave him the gospel. Cornelius got saved and became a Christian, the first Gentile convert in his whole household, that whole city. It was awesome, a revival. So this is the Caesarea that we saw in Acts chapter 10. So Paul's coming to Caesarea, very significant city, port city, military city. There's a church there. There's believers there. Interestingly enough, Paul's going to come back at some point to Caesarea where he's going to be a prisoner. And he's going to be in prison for two years in Caesarea. Sitting there, rotting in a cell. So they think when actually he's he's writing letters for Jesus to the Christians, talking to the jailers, giving them the gospel. So Caesarea, very important. Uh, Departed, came to Caesarea, entering the house of Philip. So Philip uh, lived in Caesarea at the time. Philip, We saw Philip earlier. He was doing ministry in Samaria. He was one of the first seven deacons. He was uh, full of the spirit, a man of God, a man of integrity. He ministered to and gave the gospel to the Ethiopian eunuch and baptized him. This is the same Philip. This is not Philip the apostle. This is Philip who did ministry in Samaria in Acts chapter 8. And here... It calls him Philip the Evangelist, an evangelist, a good newser. He went out and gave good news. That's evangelism, euangelizo, give the good gospel to people. And that's what he did, told people about Jesus, just like he did the Ethiopian eunuch. And so he did that on a regular, ongoing basis. That became the very essence of who he was, Philip the Evangelist. He loved Jesus and needed to tell everybody about it. And apparently a godly man and his uh, whole household came to believe, at least four of his daughters, uh, it goes on, entering the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven deacons. We saw in Acts chapter 6, uh, Paul and Luke and his team stayed with Philip. Very hospitable of him to do that. Verse 9, now this man had, so Philip had four daughters. They hadn't been married yet. That's why they're called virgin daughters. That doesn't mean they stayed virgins their whole life. But at this time, uh, they're single virgin daughters. Uh, they were grown up enough to be called prophetesses in verse 9. So these women were prophetesses. Does that mean they were pastors? No. Does that mean they were elders? No. They were prophetesses. That's very different. What is a prophet? A prophet is a spokesperson for God and a prophet in the Old Testament and New Testament. is very simple. A prophet always speaks, or when they do speak as a prophet, they speak new revelation for God. What does a prophet do? What is the definition of prophecy? It is new revelation from God, directly from God to the people. And it is spoken verbally or sometimes illustrated or sometimes written. That's what a prophet is. It is direct revelation from God. It is without error. It is binding. It's new information. It might be about the past and reaffirming the past, but it's new information. It might be about what's going on right now, but it's new divine information. It might be a prophecy about the future, but it's new information. So that's the common denominator. Prophecy isn't just preaching. Some people today say that, well, prophecy is just preaching. No, it is not. Prophecy has ceased. I am not a prophet nor the son of a prophet. Prophecy from the Old Testament all the way to the book of Revelation is always the same, and it is different from just preaching. Did prophets preach? Yes, they did. But not because they had the gift of prophecy. They had the gift of teaching and preaching is why they preached. It's a different gift. Prophecy is ongoing divine. It's divine in a new revelation, always. It's not always about the future, but it's always new revelation. It's always direct from God. So in other words, when you spoke true prophet, you couldn't make an error. If you said, thus saith the Lord, you spoke and it was erroneous. It was a false prophecy. It wasn't prophecy. As a matter of fact, according to Deuteronomy 13 and 18, then you should be stoned to death, at least in the Old Testament. So 
prophecy, direct revelation from God, speaking on behalf of God to the people. And these four girls had that gift. That's awesome. And so that's what they did. They spoke divine revelation, not any time they wanted to. It's when God chose to reveal it. This gift died out after all the apostles died at, by the end of the first century, according to first, at least according to first Corinthians 13, prophecy will be done away with. It'll cease. It won't be needed anymore. Ongoing revelation once God has finalized the scriptures. So women could be prophetesses. Absolutely. They're right here. And they're not the only ones. This is nothing new. You read the Gospel of Luke and you read chapter 2 and you read about the prophetess Anna, the old, very old woman who made a prophecy in her day about the Messiah. She was a prophetess and she wasn't a prophetess her whole life. It was just at a certain time in her life, at the end of her life, when Christ was born, God spoke through her, Anna, prophetess. And there were prophetesses in the Old Testament. Isaiah the prophet, he was married to Mrs. Isaiah. And I think Mrs. Isaiah had the gift of prophecy. Every once in a while, according to the Old Testament, Deborah, the judge in the book of Judges, at one point in her life, she spoke as a prophetess of God. So this was a gift that God used at his prerogative. So these ladies were given divine revelation. I don't know why Luke mentions the fact that the okay, Philip had four daughters and they were prophetesses. Well, who cares? Why are you saying that, Luke? Well, probably because they were an amazing resource and reservoir of information for Luke. It's like, man, you got you got four daughters who speak divine, direct revelation from Almighty God. Wow, can I talk to them as he's got his pen and his scroll out? And maybe the prophetesses of Philip, the daughters, maybe that's where he got some of his information that he put in the gospel of Luke and also in the book of Acts. Amazing. Uh, verse 10, and as we were staying there for some days, there at Philip's house, along comes a prophet, a modern-day prophet. So here's another prophet. His name is Agabus. We saw him earlier in Acts chapter 11, years before, where he made a prophecy that there was going to be a famine in Jerusalem in the days of Claudius, and that was fulfilled. There was a famine that covered that part of the world in the days of Claudius, and Jerusalem was impacted by that famine. It was devastating. This is the same Agabus. He speaks true prophecies. He is a true prophet of God. So Agabus apparently finds out that Paul is here. He's local. He's at Philip's house. I'm going to go to Paul's house. He's commissioned by God to go see Paul because he has a message for Paul. And he came from Judea near Jerusalem. That's where Agabus apparently lived. So he goes here. See Paul, verse 11, and coming to us, Agabus came to Paul and Luke and his team, and he took Paul's belt, goes up and just takes Paul's belt. So Paul probably had a, a long old robe on and a very long belt that somehow uh, fastened things different than our belts today, but he just took Paul's belt. And then he began, Agabus stands there and he begins to bind, he ties it around his legs somehow, and then he ties it around his own hands, Agabus. He's a visual illustration for everybody there watching. And people are like, what, what are you doing? You know, prophets could be kind of crazy and kooky in the Old Testament. Even John the Baptist, that guy is weird. He wears weird clothes. He smells funny. He eats locust and honey. That's disgusting. But anyway, Agabus is no different. He's doing weird stuff and he's dramatizing a prophecy. He's a living prophecy on the behalf of Almighty God, accompanied by words, ties himself up. And then he says this, and this is basically, thus saith the Lord. This is what the Holy Spirit says. This is from Almighty God. You can count on it. 
Look at me in this way. The Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. There was the prophecy. Paul, when you go to Jerusalem, you will be arrested. You will be bound. You will be turned over to the Gentiles. That is the Roman government for execution. Prophecy. Well, that's kind of why did he have to act it out? Why couldn't he just tell him here? Agabus is acting just in the pattern of Old Testament prophets. Read any of the prophets, just about all of them, uh, especially the major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. They had ministries that extended decades sometimes, and they gave different prophecies at different times. And Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Isaiah, at times God asked them to dramatize certain prophecies publicly so that people would see them as they're walking by to get it. To give it attention, to highlight it, to accentuate it, to bring accountability to those people, to making it so graphic. If you haven't read your Old Testament, you go to Isaiah chapter 20, which is one of my favorites. And God tells Isaiah, so this is like 750 B.C., and God tells Isaiah, okay, I want you to do a prophecy, bring the word of the Lord to these people and a message. I think it was for Egypt or whoever, but this is what I want you to do. I want you to take off all your clothes and your sandals and go around naked. Okay, and walk around naked and say the following. You know what? I want you to do it for three years. What? Yeah, seriously. Seems kind of embarrassing. But it was quite dramatic. It, it, it got people's attention. There's that crazy Isaiah. He doesn't have it. Well, actually, okay, he's in his underwear. All right. But anyway, uh, there he is again saying those crazy things. And then there was Ezekiel, same thing. God having him go out. Okay, I want you to go out and get some mud and some dirt and pretend like you're a boy again and start playing in the mud and start building things and get a brick and draw the city of Jerusalem in there. And then I want you to play war in the mud and lay siege against that brick and beat it up. I want you to lay down on the ground and have a war in the mud. And do that for over a year. As people walk by, Ezekiel, what are you doing playing in the mud? So these prophetic and Jeremiah had some as well. All the way back to Moses as he was dramatizing the word of the Lord and turning a stick into a snake and turning water into blood. All the way up to John the Baptist, who I already referred to earlier. Where God many times illustrated the truth through dramatic presentations because we are physical human beings. Drama. Well, you know, today in this day and age, we can relate to drama. Sometimes to be relevant, we want drama in the church, don't we? Ah, that preaching is so boring. Can't we have some drama? Let's do some dramas. Let's do a play. Let's watch a video. Let's do some drama. So we have spiritual dramas today. So I'm going to get to that in just a second. So anyway, he puts on this drama. Everybody gets the message that's there. When they heard, when we heard this, Luke included, Luke has already heard from Paul many times that I'm going to go to Jerusalem and I'm probably going to be arrested and I could die, Luke. Do you understand this? I've been saying this for thousands of miles. Yeah, I got you, Paul. But when Agabus illustrates it, apparently it just overwhelmed Luke. It's like it finally sunk in. Because that's what, look at verse uh, 12. When we had heard this, we, says Luke, as well as all the local residents, began begging Paul not to go to Jerusalem. Now, Luke knows this is the will of God. This has been Paul's plan. This is what he's been called to do. This is what Jesus said in Acts chapter 9 when he called Paul. And here's Luke, of all people. 
And Paul and, and Luke, he's just he's got good intentions. He loves Paul. I don't want you to die. Pleading with him. So that's the illustration, the prophetic illustration of what God's will was for Paul. And then finally, Paul's declaration. Does he cave to the peer pressure from all of his friends and family and those who love him? Sometimes we can't. Sometimes that could be a stumbling block. We know what God wants us to do, and then we could be led astray or wooed emotionally by not doing God's will because other people say, oh, no, don't do that. And you have to be very careful. You have to pray and discern. Make sure this is God's will. Sometimes people give you good counsel and good wisdom. Don't do that. That would be really stupid. And it would be stupid because it's not the will of God. But other times people say, don't do that, but it's God's will, and you should do it despite what people think. And that's what's difficult to figure out. That's where you really got to be in tune with the Spirit of God, His will. Not always easy to do. I think Paul knows exactly what he's supposed to be doing. He's supposed to be going to Jerusalem. And here's how he responds, verse 13 and 14, in the declaration. This is Paul's response. Then Paul answered, what are you doing? It's like Luke's probably hanging onto his arm and the little kids are grabbing his leg. And Don't go, don't go. What are you doing? Weeping and breaking my heart. So the emotion got to Paul. He loves these people. On the one hand, he probably doesn't want to go, but he knows he has to go. Breaking my heart, you're breaking my heart. I wonder if that phrase comes from the Bible. You're breaking my heart. I wonder if this has ever been used in literature or writings before this. Just an aside, once again, people adopting phraseology and things from the Bible, and they don't even realize it. What are you doing weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready. See, and he has a resolve. I am, don't you understand? I am ready not only to be bound or arrested or put in chains, but even to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Paul was amazing. He had to be, he had the right temperament. He was just unique. God needed Paul to accomplish what God wanted him to do. The courage he had, the single-mindedness he had, obedience in the face of death unlike none other. He was the perfect instrument for the calling God had for him. Most of us probably would just cower over in fear. I'm ready to die for Jesus. Here's a question. What are you ready to die for, Christian? Not to make you feel guilty. I had to ask myself that this week. Am I, what am I willing to die for without batting an eyelash? And is it at all related to the kingdom of God? Is it at all a worthy cause? Well, that's how Paul lived his Christian life, at least at this time in his life. So it is challenging. You don't need to feel guilty about it because God knows our days. He's numbered our days. He has a plan that's different for everybody else. And you shouldn't focus really on more dying for Jesus as much we should be focusing on living for Jesus. And when it's time to go and be to heaven, he knows when that is. He'll take care of it. But Paul was unique. He was an apostle with a unique mission. But with tremendous resolve. Verse 14, and since he would not be persuaded because he was in, I believe, God's will, we fell silent. Just everybody just kind of breathless, overwhelmed with emotion, couldn't say anything. Well, we're not going to change his mind. Wow. He's willing to die for, wow. And then this beautiful comment remarking, the will of the Lord be done. Thy, thy will be done. So Paul had an influence on them, 
and brought them all into submission to the will of God. We resign our own wills and desires and plans to, to God's sovereign plan. And that's what the book of James says we all need to do, right? I don't want to do this. I want to do this. Or I plan to do this. No, don't. You're not in charge. I'm not in charge. God is sovereign. He's in charge. Take all your plans, submit it to him and say, thy will be done, God, whatever you want. That's how you should live the Christian life. And the same with me. And Paul was a beautiful model of that. Because he was fallen. He was a sinner, just like us. Paul was no different. Well, speaking of. We need to have some drama in the church. Well, we do. Wouldn't it be cool to do something dramatic, hands-on, to portray a spiritual picture, to be involved in it, and the action itself is a prophecy of the future, of an amazing event, the greatest event in all of history, the coming, the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ to earth. Wouldn't that be awesome? Can I get an amen? Thank you. That is what communion is. Isn't that amazing? When Jesus gave communion to his, and by the way, we're going to have communion right now. So go ahead, our ushers, you can go ahead and start getting the elements ready. So Jesus has his, actually, they're supposed to be selling the, the Passover before his death, right out of the Old Testament in obedience to scripture. And they're celebrating the Passover and Jesus turns it, transforms it now into communion, the Lord's Supper and gives it new, fuller meaning in according, accordance with scripture. It becomes the, the fulfillment of the new covenant. And then Jesus tells the apostles from now on, I'm leaving and I'm going to be, I'm going back to heaven where I came from. I'm going to be with the father, but I'm coming back. But until I come back in Matthew 25, he, he said, it's going to be a long time, Matthew 25. I'm coming back in a long time. And while I am away and before I do come back, you need to do this dramatic prophecy that you get to participate in in a hands on manner. With the bread that represents me, my my body. My life. Because I am the bread from heaven. And then also the cup, the wine. Which is a metaphor for blood, which speaks of death. And so the church regularly, routinely, all believers need to be involved in this drama of communion, the Lord's table, the Lord's supper, Eucharist. And celebrate it often. And when you do think about its meaning, its implications. That the Lord Jesus Christ died for. So if you are a Christian today, you are invited and welcome to take communion. And Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 11, as you do, uh, lay your heart before God in your own mind and pray to him and thank him for his death and resurrection on behalf of you as a sinner. And also Paul said to examine your heart and make sure that you come clean before God. If there's things you're holding on to or you have a hardened heart, God, soften my heart, forgive me of my sin. And I thank you that you died for me to even make that possible. And I celebrate that. I celebrate the forgiveness of sin you've provided for me with your life and your death and your resurrection. And that's what you're celebrating in this drama of communion. And I said there was a prophetic element to it too, because most of it's looking at the past, right? The work that Christ did, who he is and what he did for us. But also the present, because I'm enjoying ongoing forgiveness of sin in light of his provision. So it's the past, it's the present, present reality. 
And it's also a prophecy of the future. You do this until he comes again. You, do, you declare this. This is a declaration that the Lord Jesus Christ is coming again. You can count on it. We look forward to it. We live in light of that. Oh, come, Lord Jesus. Maranatha. That's what the early church used to pray. Maranatha. Come, Lord Jesus. I live in light of your return. I look forward to your return. I welcome your return. Please return to make all things right. To to resurrect and glorify me. A, A fallen, wicked sinner. A sin lives in me, O wretched man that I am. Glorify me after the likeness of you, Lord Jesus, who are glorified in your resurrection body. Philippians chapter 3. That's what we live for and look forward to. It's the Christian reality. It's, it's the only truth. It gives us hope for the day. It gives us reason to live for tomorrow. It's an absolute solid rock of foundation for Christians. This is God's truth for us. This is what we celebrate at communion. It is absolutely glorious. So if you're a Christian, you know Jesus Christ personally. You're rejoicing now in the ongoing forgiveness of sin. And also looking forward to his glorious coming. With that in mind, go ahead and take a moment. Give you a moment just to, to talk to the Lord Jesus Christ in your own heart. Pray to him. And then we'll partake together. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Grace Bible Fellowship, please visit our website at gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.